Welcome to Plant Stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Myth or fact? Minnie has prepared five pages of notes for this episode. That one's a myth. It's actually six. Let's get ready to learn, people. It's Minnie's favorite topic, tea. (laughs) It's true. It's my favorite topic. (laughs) Like, up there in the top five of things that if you, uh, you know, catch me off guard, I might go on about forever is tea. Well, where does the story begin? So, I think, first of all, we have to establish, like, what tea is. So, tea is kind of in four main types with two, like, other teas that kind of are associated with those four main ones. So, the four main types of tea are... Green tea, white tea, black tea, and oolong tea. And then there is also yellow tea, which is a lot closer to a white tea, although it's kind of like slightly different. And a pura tea, which is pretty similar to a black tea. And all of these types of tea come from the Camellia sinensis plant or sinensis plant. Uh, which is an evergreen shrub native to Asia. So lots of things are labeled tea or they say like herbal tea or something. And um, that's not tea. They're technically called tisanes. And so that is anything that we like soak in water to get taste. These types of tea made from specifically from the camellia sinensis plant they are the only real types of tea everything else is just like a fancy herbal infusion so i know you're probably like i love chamomile tea and i'm like well that's not tea so that's not tea (laughs) (laughs) doesn't count so is this just like because it's from a specific plant or does this have something to do with like caffeine? No, it more has to do with the fact that tea comes from this plant. And while this plant does have uh, caffeine in it, the level of caffeine varies greatly depending on how the tea is made. So that's why something like black tea typically has more caffeine in it than something like green tea, which has like green tea technically only has like 10% of the caffeine in it that for it instance, like a cup of coffee does. So, I mean, it has caffeine, but at a much lower level. And if you wanted something that was more at the level of coffee, then you would probably want more of like a black tea. And what kind of like flavor profiles would you get each of these categories? Uh, So green tea and white tea tend to be lighter flavors. Um, White tea is a little bit more florally and green tea is a little bit more earthy. Oolong and black tea, they tend to have this kind of like much deeper 
more flavorful profile to them because they're actually what's considered fermented, although it's not fermented in the traditional way that we think of the word fermenting, which we will talk about in a little bit. Um, but generally lighter teas are going to be your white and green teas, even yellow tea, which uh, yellow tea is kind of somewhere in between white and green tea, a little bit more towards white tea where it's also has a very light flavor to it. And uh, the Pura tea has kind of a more specific flavor is made in a specific area of China. And uh, it's more of like that kind of like, almost like spicier, deep flavored uh, black tea. And so, I mean, tea itself is usually grown from 1,000 to 7,000 feet or 300 to 2,000 meters above sea level. And the idea is that the higher the level, the further up in the air it is, the better the tea. So when tea is graded, highest grade tea is grown at the highest level above sea level. Interesting. Do you know why that would be? It's supposed to be like the tea tastes fresher. It's, uh, you know, like richer in flavor. It's not as affected by the environment as some of the ones on lower levels. But tea itself, we won't really get into that, or this would be even longer than it's already going to be. But tea itself has like an entire grading system based off of taste and where it's grown and, uh, you know, how long certain parts of the process go on for to create, you know, these different flavors and stuff. So it's, uh, it's pretty extensive, the actual like grading system for tea and why certain things are the way they are. But it's basically said that higher quality tea grows at, you know, higher altitudes. Typically, that's really also where the plant is more native to anyway. So it's the best environment for that plant. But it can be grown at lower levels as well. And so there are three types of the Camellia sinensis plants, which are Camellia sinensis sinensis, which comes from China, Camellia sinensis assamica, which comes from Assam, or it's also known as like Indian tea, and the Camellia sinensis cambodiensis, which comes from Cambodia and is like a hybrid kind of of the other two plants the chinese version tends to have smaller leaves and it is more of like a bush plant they are quite long lasting they can even live for hundreds of years and typically they produce a more delicate tree uh, they usually grow between 8 to 20 meters or 25 to 65 feet if they are left unpruned, which most of the time on a tea plantation, a lot of the plants are cut down to make it easier to harvest them. And then the Indian variety produces tea with a really strong earthy flavor, 
the tree is much smaller. It starts off usually at around like 20 feet or uh, six meters and doesn't tend to get as big as the other one. But it has much bigger leaves and it usually lives about 40 years. Wow, very different. Yeah. And so the plants, like I said, they're often pruned to make harvesting easier. And most of the time, if you go to a tea plantation, you won't necessarily see tea plants at their full height. Although there are some places that, you know, own plots of land and kind of allow the tea to grow freely and harvest it that way. Most places are, you know, actual plantations. And so it's also true that kind of in different regions, there's different like origin stories about exactly how tea came about being that most of the tea that and its history that we really know about comes from China. Uh, the Chinese attribute tea to Emperor Shen Nong, who decreed all water needed to be boiled before consumption for the health of his subjects, and then one day had the leaves of this tree fall into his water. And he just determined this was like the best thing ever, and it like magically healed him from being poisoned because he was like well known for going out and just trying random plants to see what happens I guess and cool emperor (laughs) well they say emperor but he's also kind of like a mythical legend as like this agricultural kind of like grandfather of China as well but he was also called emperor so um, and then you have like the China or the Japanese who attribute the tea plant to this story of Dharma, who was an Indian Buddhist monk. And the legend has it that he cut off his eyelids to keep himself from falling asleep because, you know, when you got to meditate, you just got to meditate forever. And he threw those eyelids onto the ground and they grew into two tea plants, which he then was able to use to keep himself alert. Interesting story. Uh, I know, a little macabre, but, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, Very different than the, these leaves happen to fall into my water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I cut my own eyelids off and then I drank the tea made from them. Just stay alert. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's kind of where it originally comes from. And then, like I mentioned a little bit before, The kind of tea that you get from the tea plant is strictly created from the process of what happens to the tea after it's been, uh, you know, removed from the plant. So white, yellow, and green teas are considered, quote, unfermented. Like I said, fermentation in this case doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as like putting things together with vinegar and like burying them underground. That's not what it means. Um, oolong tea is considered semi-fermented and black tea is considered fermented. And so this kind of determines the amount of oxidation the leaves receive right after being picked. And so certain enzymes will remain inactivated or be activated and that will cause different tastes in the tea. So the whole process is basically the tea starts by 
withering and drying. So for instance, white tea, because it is unfermented, only goes through the withering and drying process, which is you remove the leaves from the plant. After a certain period of time, about 20 to 30% of the water is removed from the plant. So that's the withering. And then the leaves are dried. So that means, you know, being laid out in the sun to dry or, you know, being dried through like a steaming process, depending on exactly what you're doing. And then some of the other uh, types of tea have additional processes as well. So white tea is unique because fresh leaves only undergo those two processes. And the name white really comes from the silvery white down hairs that you get. They're rather fragile and they only remain on the leaves when the process is this simple. So, so yeah, two main types of this tea are yin zen, which is silver needles, and pai mu tan, which is white peony. And they mainly come from China. They're considered to have this really light and delicate flavor. You know, the tea is like a very, very light yellowy color would not as dark as yellow tea but definitely nowhere near green tea yellow tea is pretty rare and it's really only produced in china and it just goes through a slightly different process of being heated before it's allowed to wither and this gives it this like more yellowy hue than like green tea or the regular white tea would get And so green teas are really probably the most variable in this group of unfermented teas because there's just so many different uh, types and shades. The green can come in depending on, uh, you know, how long you allow certain processes to go on or where exactly the plant comes from. Um, In China, a lot of times the freshly plucked leaves are roasted and then rolled So basically they go through that kind of like extra step from white tea of being like roasted for a little bit and then rolled into tea leaves. Um, And then in Japan, they're actually sweated in a steam tank until they're like soft and pliable and then rolled and let dry. So it's just these little differences that make like a big difference in flavor And a big difference in what in the plant is actually released for you to taste when you're drinking the tea. Oolong tea, which uh, means black dragon in Chinese. I think that's possibly given this name because of the way the leaves look when mixed with hot water. You know, like little black dragons in your cup, I guess. Um, but there is kind of this legend of a man being scared away by a black serpent, causing him to leave his tea leaves in the sun. And so then when he returns, he ends up with this semi-oxidized tea that he then takes and tries and decides it's pretty good. So Oolong by the black serpent. Right. And so like oolong tea is usually like sun dried for some part or exposed to oxidation for some period of time, uh, but not quite the same way that black tea is. Uh, And Taiwan is considered one of the places that produces the world's 
finest oolong tea. Um, they range in flavor between like more like green tea and more like black tea with ones that kind of have more of a green tea taste. They have like a lighter flowery flavor and the darker brown teas having a more like earthy rich flavor to them. And so black tea, which is known in the Western world as black tea, but is known uh, by a lot of Asian cultures as red tea, was first produced in the 1300s, where it was really made for trade. And so this was tea that was oxidized because it kept better that way. And then it was often compressed into cakes, which traveled better and kept their aroma and flavor. And so they would ferment the leaves in the air after being withered and bruised by rolling them until they turned a copper red color. And then they would be baked. So only black tea goes through like all the processes of making tea, which is the withering, the rolling out of them. So like bruising them somewhat so that you release some of those enzymes and then fermenting, which is allowing them to kind of sit uh in like moisture but also sun and then like letting them fully dry out producer specifically of black tea you've probably heard of like uh, Darjeeling tea which is one of the teas that we'll talk about in a little bit but is one of the most uh, popular types of black tea and then when we talk about Pura tea so like I mentioned before Pura actually refers to a specific area of China in the Yunnan province where the teas must technically be produced to fit into this category although there are other places that are known to make similar-ish tea. This is Um, the champagne of tea. Yeah. And this is the tea that would be known to uh, the Chinese as black tea. So, like I said, what we know as black tea, they would usually call red tea. This would be what they call black tea. And they typically come from plants that reside in six specific mountains. And many of the tea trees that they collect these harvests from are said to be between 500 and 1,000 years old. So because the leaves from these trees have to be picked off of natural plants that reside in these mountains and not cultivated plants on a plantation, there are early legends that say monkeys actually used to be trained to do this work. And It is also a tea that's said to improve with age. So it's a lot of times something... It's already very expensive, but it's also more expensive the older version of it you get. So like wine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it also comes in two types. So there's like a raw version and then there's a cooked version The raw version is usually the one that comes aged. And so obviously tea drinking has quite a history in China. 
And it's difficult to tell exactly when tea drinking began. Although they do know that probably what was mostly drunk early on was more of a white or a green tea, which was dried leaves directly steeped. It was often used kind of just more of as a medicinal drink. So something to make you more alert, something to like clear your head a little bit. And tea and its different types have often kind of fell in and out of fashion during different times of political change in Chinese history. So during the Song Dynasty, which was 960 to 1279 AD, we saw the popularity of like fine powdered teas. So matcha is what it's called in Japan, but in China, a very similar type of tea is called mocha, which is whisked into hot water instead of distributed in leaf form. And even all the way back then, they basically did like latte art, but like (laughs) with, yeah, but like with this powdered green tea. So artists would draw little pictures in the foam, you know, because why not? Yeah. Make little flowers. And then there was kind of a while where tea was like not as popular for about like a hundred years or so. And then it returned during the Ming dynasty where it was really uh, fermented black tea that became popular. And that was steeping in whole leaves instead of using a powdered version. And so even with this tea houses became very popular prosperous establishments you know there were different types of atmospheres so like some tea houses you might be like hearing music or some tea houses would be where like all the poets hung out or some tea houses would be you know where there was no music and people talked about boring scholarly things or like <laughs> i don't know confucianism or something yeah i gotta have the philosophers yeah Um, But, you know, it was a great way for people to, like, get together in a a very social way uh, in places like Sichuan, you know, like, that was a big part of social life. And it continued that way, really, until the 1940s, where, uh, you know, there started to be more uh, communist ideals, and people were really busy working, and you know, we're not doing as much scholarly work at their local tea house. And it didn't really see a revival again until the 1970s, although current tea houses are said to have a much more modern feel to them. But there were also parts of the south of China where tea houses kind of grew into these large restaurant type enterprises especially places like hong kong uh, where they were might have been influenced by other settlers and things and this is also the same kind of places where they started serving dim sum uh, which also means heart warmers so it was like you got your tea and then you got your little heart warmer snack what is a dim sum it's just like a little like a snack is it like a dumpling? It's not one specific thing. 
So like okay. if you go so if you go out for dim sum, it's like, you know, you get your choice of like snacks. That's dim sum. So like warm appetizers. Yeah, and a lot a lot of time it's like more almost I think it's more associated with breakfast as far as I can tell, like or like morning, like lunch maybe. Mm-hmm. It's okay, not necessarily okay. like dinner. It's meant to keep you like warm and happy. And so they became more like restaurant type enterprises after a while rather than just a tea house. Like you would go and you would get tea and you would get your dim sum. And they were a common place to conduct all kinds of professional to private things like, uh, you know, business dealings or like, you know, talking to someone about who you were going to marry your child off to or, you know, whatever. That's that's where that happened was at the local tea house. Because, you know, why not? And, you know, today tea is cultivated in a lot of places in China. Except for some of the, like, much colder regions. Because it's not the right environment for tea. But there are lots of places in China where people cultivate tea. And so, eventually, you know, tea was brought from China over to Japan. And so... Obviously, I think a lot of people know about Japan's tea ceremony ritual. So that ritual was originally a Buddhist ritual. And it's kind of sad that in the late 14th century, a Zen priest named Shuko combined the rituals of preparing and drinking tea with this like very spiritual sense of humility and tranquility. And that was kind of the first version of the tea ceremony. So he decided that that was going to be the new like spiritual ceremony. It meant something to him as a Buddhist monk, basically. And he created this whole ceremony. And then a few hundred years later, it was amended by another priest named Riku into the ceremony that still exists today, which is less elaborate although that feels like a weird thing to say because from what i have been able to see about the japanese tea ceremony although i've never sat through one myself it does seem pretty elaborate still i don't know um but it's like simpler intentions it could be yeah and it it's meant to focus on harmony respect purity and serenity so sense of calm and respect and this ceremony ended up having an effect on all of japan's fine arts so everything from flower arranging to paintings and even you know the ceremony itself is full of a lot of individually artfully laid out parts so you're talking you know like everything from the tea set that you had to like the mat that you placed on it like those were all influenced by the actual like process of the ceremony and the meaning of that ceremony and so it influenced the making of you know pottery and housewares and the outfits that people wore because they also needed to represent these things and so that became a really big part of their artistry they also have many different grades of green tea that they use which 
are for different occasions. So probably the most popular everyday tea in Japan is sencha, which is like everyday green tea. And then matcha is kind of the more expensive powdered green tea that you'd use for, you know, special occasions. There's also grades within sencha. So like the lowest grade sencha is bancha. They all sound pretty similar, but you know, just there are different, there are different grades. There are different reasons you would drink each thing. You know, sencha is like your breakfast morning tea, kind of similar to, you know, English breakfast tea or Earl Grey in the West. And so, you know, eventually the tea trade went global and tea ended up becoming one of the most valuable trade goods in China. The other two really being porcelain and silk. So multiple trade routes were able to bring tea out of China. And very early on, China was the only producer of tea. Uh, and it would bring it to other countries and areas of the region. So there was the Tea Horse Road, which connected you know, main China to Tibet, Burma, and other southwest areas. And then there was the Silk Road, which allowed trade between Central Asia, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean, and China. And then there was also a third route that came later, which was known as the Tea Road, which linked China to Russia through Siberia. So because tea was often traded in brick form, there were some areas such as Tibet, Mongolia, and Siberia where tea bricks were actually used as a form of currency over metallic coins. That's pretty cool. It's kind of interesting to me because I can't imagine like having money that like if you were desperate enough, you could just drink. <laughs> like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like You're like, oh, okay, yeah, like. I'll trade you three tea bricks for that thing. And then they're like, nah. And you're like, oh, it's cool. I can just eat this, Trade. basically. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. I'll just, yeah. yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it, man. Like, I got it. Can't eat my gold, but I can eat this brick of tea. So yeah. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, it's definitely a, a different way to think about it. But it was also very valuable at that time. And, it was, you know, you could only get it from China. There was no other producer of tea at this time. And so tea was really embraced by the Tibetans. And um, a primary reason from this is that Tibet is a place where they have very inhospitable land to, you know, growing food. So most of their diet is just meat and dairy. And so tea was embraced by them as a way to make their very meat and dairy heavy diet a little bit more digestible. And so they developed this tea called, quote, butter tea, hmm. which is not just butter. Some people even consider it more of a soup because it's that thick. But basically it's tea that is then mixed with yak butter and yak milk. 
uh, to make this kind of like thick, hearty liquid that is then, you know, drunk by these people. That actually uh, sounds pretty good. <laughs> honestly, I'm super curious to try it. And one day, if I were to finally get the opportunity to really travel around Asia, I would definitely go there to try it. Yeah, you should just go on a tea-based vacation. <laughs> yep, that would be me, just like running <laughs> that around. That sounds great. <laughs> go to a bunch of like historical tea houses and like tours of plantations. That sounds fun. Oh, you know I would. Uh, the Burmese also make this thing called a leflet, which is pickled tea leaves. And it's often used to cleanse the palate after a meal. Uh, they were also big consumers of green tea and sometimes something that was called sweet tea, which was made by Indian immigrants that some consider like closer to like the modern chai. Hmm. And so it was pretty popular in Burma as well. Uh, you know, tea houses sprung up along the roads to many of those these places, uh, especially as a place of rest along these main routes. And a lot of traditions were kind of mutually shared there. And so, you know, tea consumption was also popular among the, I'm probably going to say this name wrong. I've probably been saying all these names wrong, but we'll just go with it. Um, the... Ukers, which I know have been having some issues in China right now, so I probably should know how to say their name, but I don't. Um, and they are a Turkish originating people who lived in a lot of the areas that made up the Silk Road, still what is technically today Chinese territory, but they did kind of have their own area there. And they drank tea with salt and milk or flavored with cinnamon, or also sometimes mixed with like a sour or like a heavy cream. So many tea drinking customs along this that were shared, you know, it was, it became popular in certain areas where like on the Silk Road, you would place sugar lumps on your tongue and then suck the tea through the sugar lump to get sweet tea. That's, uh, you know, Later on in the 1600s, that's when kind of the tea road to Russia finally started receiving those, you know, black tea shipments. And they drink their tea very hot and with lemon, sometimes with a spoonful of fruit preserve. And then you have like the Moroccans over in the Middle East who had already been drinking herbal infusions for a long time. And so they took well to drinking tea, but they often drank it with spearmint and a lot of sugar. So I think <laughs> a lot of people have heard of Moroccan mint tea, and that's kind of oh, yeah. like, yeah, where this comes from. And so in Morocco, too, tea houses were considered like a place of artistry, like tea preparation itself was an art. And so usually the master of the tea house is responsible for all the preparation and serving of the tea in the tea house. Because that's like part of why you go there is like that guy is the artist who serves the best tea. Because you know? mm -hmm. it's got to be a, like different temperatures for different kinds of tea, right? There are, you know, there are better temperatures than some others. And there's also, you know, a lot of debate between people about like what is best. It depends on your taste and things like that. But certainly... 
you know, if you liked your tea one way somewhere, you'd probably keep going back there because there would be some some differences from place to place. Yeah, I see that in like coffee, like there's certain cafes that I like, like everybody's making coffee, but some places make it just the way I like. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, all this was happening kind of like a little bit more localized when we're talking about, you know, uh, China and some of its surrounding areas and, you know, some of these roads. And so really tea didn't expand out to the Western world until the 1600s. And even then it was a very expensive novelty, but it was popular among the wealthy. Go figure. Go figure. (laughs) And it's believed that the Portuguese were really the ones who brought tea over at first because they were the first people to navigate the Cape of Good Hope. But it didn't seem to be their, like, main focus in trade. And it wasn't really until later on when uh, the Dutch started going there that they started really bringing more tea back. And so there's a lot of, you know, different places. Coffee and tea kind of fought with each other a little bit in, in this arena. Uh, You know, there were some places that are more known for drinking coffee and some places that are more known for drinking tea. So, for instance, Germany was a place that's kind of more well known for drinking coffee, but they actually did drink tea. And so they drink a very strong tea that's poured over a sugar lump and then given a healthy dose of cream. And they actually ended up really enjoying black tea that later on came out of India And when the first shipment of Darjeeling tea left India, they actually bought about 50% of it. Dang. (laughs) Yeah. So that's quite a lot. And then a lot of the main wholesalers of tea in Europe ended up being based in Hamburg. I wonder if they were big fans of chai. I don't know. Darjeeling tea is not like chai tea at all. So I, mean i just say that because you know they're adding like sugar and cream to it so i'm like i wonder if they even got to try chai tea or chai they're like we like tea (laughs) if it like doesn't actually taste like tea yeah exactly so basically yeah you know they like tea sure but you know, eventually demand kind of started to increase in Europe. It was something that people were excited about and wanted more of. And as we have talked about before, you know, this also had a big dealing in the opium wars. So when Europe decided that they didn't want to spend so much money or actual gold trading with them, And the Chinese didn't really want anything that the Europeans had other than gold. They started trading them opium and then that caused a big power imbalance because all these people in China were addicted to opium and like consuming opium at this ridiculous cost. And then it made it so that basically Europe was getting really, really cheap tea. And when China tried to stop it, they got angry. Uh, But 
you know, we won't get too, too into that. We've talked about that before already. Uh, this also did kind of spur the production of Darjeeling tea in India. So the East India Company were the ones who were doing a lot of the trading uh, with the tea. And during a couple points, they thought they might, you know, potentially lose the ability to trade with China or at least lose the ability to trade with them for some period of time. And being that China were the only producers of tea at the time, they were trying to find an alternative. So they actually sent a spy into China to go to some of these tea plantations and essentially steal tea plants and then bring them back to India to hopefully grow them in a similar climate. And around that same time, this kind of like jumping ahead a little bit, but it's in the 1800s. Around that same time, they actually found uh, the Assam plant. So they found the other type of the tea plant. Somebody was visiting different areas of India and they noticed that these people were using this plant in a similar way and that it was kind of a similar plant. And so there was a lot of debate over whether or not um, you know, they should use the native plant or if they should, you know, just grow the, you know, Chinese plants. There was a lot, there was also a lot of time in between this. So there was kind of like a lot of arguing over what people should do. Like plots of land were bought that then weren't used for that and blah, blah, blah. But eventually that's how, uh, you know, Darjeeling tea came to be produced and some other teas came to be produced as well. And, you know, when we talk about, like, the Boston Tea Party in the U.S., you know, a lot of that was that tea was coming, you know, from what was essentially the other side of the world. And so it was already being taxed between, you know, going from China to Europe. And then it was being taxed again to go from Europe to America. And so you had these ridiculously high prices for tea but there was still a pretty high demand there and so that was when in the late 1700s they finally started taxing tea less so the tax on tea in the beginning was 119 percent and they actually brought they actually brought it all the way down to 12.5 percent to make tea accessible to all classes that is a huge difference. Yeah. And that was in Europe. I'm not even talking yet about, you know, like going over to the other side. But they did that because they wanted to make it more accessible to all classes. They ended up with like all this tea and like nothing to do with it. So they lowered it, That you know, they lowered the taxes so that it come more accessible to all people. And it helped to ensure also that genuine tea products were being sold because what started to happen was like, People started making knockoff tea, but like some of them were poisonous. Oh no. They're like, yeah, this is this is tea. It sort of tastes like it. And people would be like, really? And they're like, yeah. And then, you know, they die or something. So it was working out, but it was still so in the beginning, you know, tea was a really still favored drink of like the English settlers 
And especially in places like New York, because New York was actually taken by the British after like the Dutch had been there for just a little bit. And so they had like similar tea gardens to those in Europe and like, you know, tea drinking was kind of like an established habit then among the wealthy. But eventually they had to lessen the tax again from Europe to America because people started threatening not to drink it. You've got like the Boston Tea Party and all that stuff. And so the East India Company had this huge surplus of tea and no one to buy it. And so they were finally like, all right, we'll lessen the tax on tea. Fine. (laughs) But then it was like a thing to not drink tea because you were like unrevolutionary if you were going to drink tea. So that's when they really started to turn to coffee or like herbal infusions. There were some people who made like similar plants work for them as like a tea substitute. And so here in the U S it really didn't get a revival until the 1900s where afternoon tea kind of became a part of social gatherings again. And, you know, it's, it was, it's always been here. I think like more of an upper classy thing. Uh, You know, not to say that no one drinks tea, but like going to tea is something that I secretly want to do all the time. But it's very expensive. Yeah, especially if you have fancy little sandwiches. I love fancy little sandwiches. Oh my gosh, nothing better. Which I guess are like the Western evolution of dim sum. Basically. And yeah, so Australians, they drank tea out of a billy can. So like they usually put a gum tree leaf to like give some extra flavor and sweetened condensed milk and then they put it in this can that they put like over a little fire or whatever to heat it up and then they would swing it around their heads to mix it and then they would drink it wow that's intense (laughs) australia seems like an intense place to be in its beginning times (laughs) i'll have to learn more about i don't really know much about its origins I don't know a ton, but what I do know seems intense. Uh, In India, you know, tea was more of similar to butter tea, where it was something that was, you know, like really thick, kind of made into a soup-ish kind of thing. And then, you know, even when China brought tea over initially, it was really thought of more of a medicinal drink. And, you know, the Assam tea wasn't really discovered to be distributed in mass until much later in 1823. So, you know, eventually they did start producing a lot of different tea. It's also true that in India, the idea of, like, afternoon tea came over with British women who were looking for husbands when the (laughs) British army and stuff was stationed in India. And so they brought kind of these more elaborate setups for tea. 
it was often eaten there with just bread and butter, possibly some sandwiches. But it was really only something that was done with, you know, these like British soldiers and their families in mind. And it wasn't really until World War I that they thought there might be a market for tea in India and tried to have more local grocers stock it, which was eventually successful, although not at first. And the word chai just means tea. So lots of people are like, chai tea, and that's just, but you're, you're just saying tea tea. Yeah, I did that earlier in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um. But that became an especially popular, like, uh, drink at cafes and things on, like, railway cars or, uh, you know, like, street vendor kind of thing. And it was a blended tea with milk and spices is pretty much all it is. It's black tea with milk and spices. It is very good. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's not my personal favorite, but I also don't like things that are that spicy, so... Uh, Lipton tea actually originated in Sri Lanka. Hmm. So a lot of people have heard of um, the Ceylon teas. So Ceylon, uh, which I'm, again, I'm positive I'm saying this wrong, but it's what Sri Lanka used to be called. And so they, yeah, so they used to have there a big booming coffee industry. They, you know, they made and sold a lot of coffee beans, but a fungus actually destroyed pretty much the whole industry. And so wow. there was a Scotsman named James Taylor who was selected to kind of experiment with seeing how well tea plants would grow there. And it ended up setting off a really successful tea business for the country. And so Thomas Lipton, obviously of Lipton tea fame, uh, he was, you know, a poor Irish kid who ended up working really hard and becoming a millionaire. And he came in kind of later with the idea that he wanted to offer a cheaper tea to, you know, more of the population by cutting out the middleman of, you know, having to like pay someone to go somewhere and then, you know, paying their tax and then you giving it to other people at another tax to make money. So he was like, we're just going to cut the middleman out and we're going to ship tea directly to the people of England. And so he initially sold tea in three qualities. So, you know, it was at three different height levels that it was grown, classified by its altitude and the like Lipton Shield is actually the logo that they used for their highest quality tea at that time. And so they still use it today as part of their logo. I feel like that's a pretty in-depth history of tea. There's a lot more that I could talk to you about, Um, but I think we're going to close out with just some health info for you. So maybe you're like, wow, you know, 
why has tea been so important all this time? And I'm here to tell you some ways. What are some of those medicinal properties? So white tea is thought to stimulate the nerve cells of the brain and reduce occurrences of cancers in stomach, colon, rectum, bladder, and prostate by attacking free radicals that can accumulate in your tissues. The polyphenols in white tea can help fight fatigue and wrinkles due to aging. And it's also supposed to be especially well-suited to bolstering the body's immune system against bacteria and diseases, as well as the fluoride in white tea can sometimes help with mouth and tooth hygiene. Those are a lot of great possible medicinal factors. Yeah, and it's true that there's some evidence that all teas can do these things. But, you know, some of them do it better things better than others. Uh, yellow tea can do many of the same things as white tea, but it's also believed to help prevent and mitigate swelling and inflammation a little better than regular white tea. Uh, green tea is supposed to be really good at helping a person um, shed some extra pounds by increasing fat oxidation by thermogenesis, so heat production in the body. It's also believed to lower LDL cholesterol levels, making it a good choice for people with diabetes. Some people even believe it might help control blood sugar levels that are already high. And there is some very limited research that suggests green tea may lubricate gray matter of the brain. And green tea is also kind of convenient because it comes in the most forms. Like you'll find green tea extract and green tea pills and green tea powder and just like green tea <laughs> stuff. Um, Are there one green tea patches? I don't know. Probably. One special type of green tea is called brassica tea. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, but it's considered very healthy and it has the ability to basically add to your body the nutrients of three ounces of fresh broccoli like with none of the taste of broccoli yeah i was gonna say brassica is associated in my brain with like dark leafy greens so yeah that makes sense yeah and then uh oolong tea has been found with to be able to help with some of the symptoms of parkinson's disease such as reduced memory and lack of focus Black tea specifically contains the most caffeine out of all of these types of tea. So I told you, you know, green tea is like 10% of a cup of coffee. Black tea is the most caffeinated. And it can help increase the ability of blood vessels to respond to stress, reduce the risk of the hardening of the arteries, heart attack, and stroke. It also contains flavonoids, which are an antioxidant that can reduce the likelihood of esophageal cancer. There's some evidence that it lowers the risk of kidney stones and protects against prostate and ovarian cancers as well. So people really think tea is a great preventative for cancer. But it can also aggravate fibrocystic disease if you suffer from it. And black tea is known to cause issues in caffeine-sensitive people, especially because it does have the most caffeine. So that can be things like breakouts, uh, tremors, or, you know, like diarrhea or stomach upset if you are drinking a lot of it. So there's a lot of good things. There's a lot of good things in tea. Definitely. 
it was great to learn about how the teas, like the different uh, creations of tea that like I've heard of and where they all like originated from and how they evolved into them. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting, I mean, this is only a smidgen Mm -hmm. of the history. I really had to cut this down. As you can see, this episode's already far too long. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, it's fine. I highly recommend, yeah, I highly recommend if you're ever interested in reading a book about really any food, there's uh, this series called the Edible Series. And I got not all of, but a significant amount of information from their book that's entitled Tea, A Global History. And it does a really good job of kind of sectioning things out by place to place and, you know, giving you some information. Uh, And there's plenty of books and things like that that will tell you, you know, about the health benefits of tea and stuff like that. Um, Some of the things that I've listed here that I've, you know, health benefits that I've told you, pretty much all of them have some kind of study to at least back the idea that they, you know, will be good at those things. Uh, Like we've already discussed, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, things that are not studied when it comes to herbal medicine because we have other types of medicine that people, you know, believe are kind of more important or isolating exactly what will do something for you instead of, you know, studying the plant as a whole. Um, and there are lots of people who will say things don't work because, you know, they don't work use them properly, like, You can drink green tea to help aid in your weight loss, but you're not going to like start drinking green tea tomorrow and lose 10 pounds by Friday. So, right. Um, But that's my tip for the day. I highly recommend that if you're interested in a specific type of food or anything, you go ahead and check out the edible series. Um, I like the tea one, but there's also lots of, you know, different they have one on coffee they have them on you know certain things like they have like one on cake they have them on Mm -hmm. all types different types of food (laughs) all the way through the alphabet that sounds like it could be a good holiday gift for somebody yeah definitely do you know what we're gonna talk about in our next episode nope (laughs) i was too busy thinking about this Well, it'll be a lovely surprise. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, thank you, Minnie, for teaching us all about tea. I I personally learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. And we look forward to what you have to teach us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a share, a like, a comment. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook under Plant Stories. And come back next week. Bye! Bye!